Welcome to the Women's Pelvic Pain Podcast, your ultimate source of uncensored information on women's pelvic health. In this podcast, you will hear from health practitioners, holistic healers, nutrition experts, and fitness gurus, in addition to people who have or had suffered from chronic pelvic pain, in order to learn and understand everything there is to know about pelvic floor disorders. About one-third of women suffer from pelvic pain. It's an unspoken epidemic. So many of us have it, yet no one talks about it. However, the mission of this podcast is to break the pelvic pain silence. The conversations are intimate, raw, and completely unedited in order to deliver the most authentic information possible. With education, patience, and the proper tools and techniques, pelvic pain can be overcome. So I want to start by briefly talking about how pelvic pain is not addressed enough or properly in the United States. So many women and men suffer from it, yet the majority of doctors can't even diagnose it, let alone treat it properly. While this issue is definitely improving, there is still a tremendous lack of awareness on the topic. Many doctors are so quick to associate pain, irritation, or any sort of discomfort with infection and treat it by prescribing medication, which often just masks the symptoms and in some cases can actually make the underlying problem much worse. This is not to say that traditional medicine is not necessary. It can be necessary and it can be helpful, but it is not the be-all end-all. An integrative approach is what will truly ignite the healing journey. Through natural channels such as physical therapy, diet, meditation, yoga, stretching, and consuming the appropriate herbs and supplements, the root cause of pelvic pain can be holistically addressed and treated. Hi guys, welcome back to the Women's Pelvic Pain Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Matluck. I'm a holistic health and wellness coach, and I've also suffered from chronic pelvic pain for the majority of my life. It's important to me that the audience of this podcast knows that I can relate to this topic on a very personal level and that I speak from my own pain, suffering, experience, and healing process and determination to help those who suffer from pelvic pain as well. On and off for about the past seven years, I've had symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction, ranging from bladder frequency and urgency to constipation and bloating, to sciatica and lower back pain, to vaginal burning, itching, pain, and discomfort, all symptoms of an infection with actually no infection at all. And because I was misdiagnosed for so long, the amount of unnecessary antibiotics I consumed was just insane. But anyways, over the past few years, I've seen so many doctors, ranging from urologists to gastroenterologists to gynecologists. I've had MRIs, I mean the list goes on and on. But about a year and a half ago, I finally saw a well-known gynecologist in New York City who told me that this was all stemming from my pelvic floor, that this was pelvic pain that I was having, and that I needed to go to pelvic floor physical therapy. So fast forward to now, I've been in pelvic floor physical therapy for about a year, and I would say my symptoms are about 85% improved. Also, I'm a huge proponent of embracing a holistic lifestyle. So I get acupuncture, I do yoga, I meditate, I see a functional medicine doctor who put me on a very specific herb and supplement regimen, and I follow a strict anti-inflammatory diet. So there's clearly a lot that I've been doing to try and heal my body, but the bottom line is that pelvic floor dysfunction is complicated, and it took about seven years to diagnose, so it is taking time to heal, but I'm definitely on my way. So if you listened to the last episode of this podcast, we did an introduction to the topic of pelvic pain, which you're going to continue today, but just dig a little bit deeper into a few specific pelvic floor disorders and treatments. My other amazing physical therapist, Erica, is here with us, and she's going to do an amazing job of covering some very important subject matter.
Hi, America. So on this episode, we are going to dig deeper into a few diagnoses that you treat with pelvic floor physical therapy. The ones that we will cover on this episode include vulvodynia, bladder pain, and PGAD, which stands for persistent genital arousal disorder. So first, give us a little bit, give us a background about yourself and then tell us about vulvodynia, um, just an overview of what it is. And yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Erica. I work at Five Point Physical Therapy in New York City, um, and I've been treating pelvic floor dysfunction for about eight years now. I started in Philadelphia, and we started. I started um, a pelvic floor um, portion of our practice um, in an orthopedic setting, and then eventually I moved back to New York, and that's when I started treating pelvic floor full-time. So most of the patients that we see are uh, have pelvic floor diagnoses. Um, and that's what led me to Hannah. Because um, the best. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I guess today we're going to talk about some pelvic pain diagnoses, right, that we see are in the umbrella of pelvic pain. Um, we... Uh, I think we're going to start... Oh, we're starting with vulvodynia, right? Yeah, we chose vulvodynia, uh, bladder pain, and PGAD because those... I mean, you can... I want to hear your opinion, but I think that those fit together well for this episode. They're all related to the vagina and the bladder. And then, you know, there's a lot of other disorders such as uh, constipation and and IBS, IBS, GI, but those we could save for another episode and group those together, right? Yeah, and even endometriosis could be another episode. So we're kind of going to do a little overview of these three today. Uh, And we're going to start with vulvodynia. And that's sort of closer to Hannah's heart, right? Because that's what you came in originally for. So That's what I was diagnosed with. So so you want a basic overview, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what is vulvodynia, right? And what its relation to pelvic floor muscles. So it's basically excessive sensitivity to the vestibule, which is right at the opening of the vagina. It's on the inside of the labia minora. Um, The excessive sensitivity can be uncomfortable for patients and, like Hannah said, causing bitch... uh, Itching. (laughs) Causing itching, burning, or rawness to the area. Bitching Uh, is is another symptom. Yeah, yeah, of course. (laughs) Patients are bitching after they have it. Um, the um, The patients tend to think that they have yeast infections or even a UTI. So many times they'll go to the gynecologist. Or bacterial infection. Or bac- yeah, mm-hmm. or bacterial vaginosis, right. So many times they'll go to the gynecologist or urgent care or a patient even told me once she used some Skype service that you could get medications Stop. from, like you could talk to a doctor. Yeah, I was getting treated for yeast infections through that, but wow. um, with no, uh, no cultures. Um, or even primary physicians and you know, you end up being treated with so many antifungal medications like Diflucan that would treat a yeast infection or antibiotics for UTI over and over again. And this could even be given to patients if they have negative cultures. The physicians are giving this out. Um, so, And this can go on for years before anything is diagnosed. And I think that happened to Hannah for a while, mm-hmm. right? A long time. Um, for a long time. So um, vulvodynia can be provoked or unprovoked. So when the patient's coming in, you'll see two different types, right? You'll see, you'll see multiple types, but these are the most um, basic. And provoked meaning that 
the pain or the rawness or the itching can all be caused by vaginal penetration or really tight clothing or even like non-cotton underwear can irritate it or thongs um, and wearing certain tampons because tampons have a lot of chemicals and and stuff Mm -hmm. in them. Um, unprovoked can mean that the patients have symptoms all the time. So they're coming in with vulvodynia symptoms, which you had a lot of, where it really wasn't provoked, that you're sitting and you're feeling it and you're, you know, laying down, nothing makes it better. Exactly. Exactly. So it could be really debilitating for the patient. I mean, it could also really give you, you know, emotional, uh, sensitivity too, because of all this and stress. A lot of emotional stress. Of course. Um, so the thought is that there's chronic inflammation in the vestibule of the vagina. And then when the nerve endings are inflamed, they start sending abnormal messages to the brain. So they're interpreting just a light touch to the area as a lot of pain, right? So even the glands on, on the vaginal opening in the vestibule, they may secrete, um, they may under secrete. So they'll cause like a lot of dryness in the area or they may even over secrete mm-hmm. and cause a lot of discharge. So the patients are thinking, oh my God, I'm getting all this discharge. I'm itching. I have a yeast infection. Um, and then the muscles near and around the vagina, the pelvic floor muscles can go into a high tension state. And if the nerve isn't, control, isn't in control and being irritated, it's not going to control the muscles either. So everything gets inflamed and tightened. When there is repeated pain in the region like this, over time, the nerve centers in the body that go to the spinal cord keep sending abnormal messages to the vestibule, and it creates this huge pain cycle. Mm-hmm. So you're just having repeated cycle of pain, right, from your mind to your pelvic floor into the vestibule, and and it can get worse over time. And our goal as physical therapists is to stop that pain cycle and give you some sort of relief. Uh, it is important that the patient is seeing a gynecologist that specializes in pelvic floor or pelvic pain diagnoses um, and also seeing even a urogynecologist, so either or. And then that they're also, that they may have to see a dermatologist to rule out any skin issues before they come in, right? So they can have any um, sort of skin irritation, eczema, things called lichens planus and lichen sclerosis all need to be ruled out before we can determine that it's vulvodynia. So I just want to quickly, I mean, all of that information is so interesting and so important for people to know who like, I I think especially who have had symptoms of an infection and haven't felt any sort of relief from the medicine that they've taken, it probably could be their pelvic floor. But I just want to quickly go through the list of all the medications that I took for a year when I had burning, burning, itching pain discomfort bladder frequency literally for one year I took I was taking between like three different gynecologists because none of them could give me the answers that made me feel any better so I would take Diflucan for yeast on and off for a year I was taking antibiotics for a UTI probably once a month for a year I was taking boric acid suppositories which are supposed to help with um, if your p if your vaginal pH is is off, right, which can work, but that wasn't your issue. That wasn't my issue. You're right. But I remember I went to a gynecologist and he told me, okay, take six hundred milligrams of boric acid every night for a month. So I was like, okay, that literally was one of many downfalls. Um, what else did I take? I took um 
metro gel suppository for bacteria infection. I'm, I took oral antibiotics for a bacteria, bacterial vaginosis infection. Like it was crazy. And now I have all of these like GI issues and all of these other issues because think about what it does to, what that did to my body, my exactly. gut, like my immune system, everything. Right. And Oh, and I was on like three different bladder medications because I had uh, really bad bladder urgency and frequency and nothing was wrong with my bladder, but I was trying different medicines and obviously none of them worked. But I mean, it's just so fascinating. And I think that so many people who have pelvic pain can probably relate to this in the sense that, you know, different doctors are giving them different medicines and you feel like you have an infection and you feel this burning and itching and discomfort and frequency, but if you're taking all of these medicines and nothing's working, odds are you really don't have an infection. And if you do have an infection and you take an antibiotic, odds are the infection will clear up. So right. like, you know, generally you should feel better after you, after you take medication for an infection. I mean, like years ago, if I had an infection and I took medicine, I would feel immediately, immediate relief right. after. So like, I kind of knew something was wrong that I kept taking so much medicine. And in fact, things were getting worse. Um, I mean, unfortunately it took a year, but then people say to me, you know, some people go on like this for seven years. So I guess I should feel thankful. You know, your own body too. Mm -hmm. You have to, like, we always ask the patients, what do you think caused it? What do you think is going on? You know, your own body and that's what you have to trust. Mm -hmm. And if you think like, oh my God, the antibiotics aren't working. There's something else going on. You have to keep seeking other options and other physicians and specialists right yeah and I didn't know what pelvic (laughs) like I didn't even know what pelvic pain was or what pelvic floor physical therapy was so it took me a while also I did have one gynecologist kind of early on who suggested I go to pelvic floor physical therapy and I did brush it off because I was like nah I don't need that I got a second opinion and from another gynecologist who told me that only women who are pregnant need pelvic floor physical therapy and so I, I guess like that was the answer I wanted because I didn't really want to go. Right. So I like listened to that, but then it took me a while to like digest the idea that this was my pelvic floor. It's not like, it's not something that a lot of people are familiar with. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And I think that educating the patient too is so important and the, and we have to educate the physicians yeah. on how to di- help diagnose and spot these things yeah. right? and how we could help. Yeah. I think literally like I think every gynecologist should have all their patients right. go to pelvic floor physical right. therapy. Because you might as well get it checked. You, know? you might as well. It's like there's no harm. <laughs> no. Everyone has a little pelvic floor thing going on. I yeah. Mean. Even if yeah. you went like w- once a month, once yeah. every three months. Like, or, yeah. I feel like it's helpful yeah. for anyone. Or at least post, even if you have no issues being pregnant or uh-huh. postpartum, you should just go and get it checked. You know? I agree. I completely agree. Um, okay. Now in terms of vulvodynia, can you talk about how you treat that medically um, and holistically as well? Yeah. So, okay. So medically, uh, what we're seeing with patients, I'm going to go through some general things that the doctors or f- notable physicians would give the patients for this. Uh, first things first they may give them some topical ointments, right? So, Oh, I forgot to mention that. I was using topical ointments for a while that weren't doing anything, but anyways, proceed. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, you'll see some physicians give some topical steroids to see if Mm -hmm. it will reduce the inflammation. It doesn't always work. Some patients, it it might. Patients that come in to see us, generally a topical steroid doesn't work. Mm -hmm. 
that and you can't use them for long because it could also deplete the tissue integrity then we'll see patients come in with lidocaine which we use and we love as a topical analgesic and that can it depends on what's in the lidocaine some of these topical agents all need to be compounded so if they're made specialty i had one of those right yeah so lidocaine can be great but sometimes it's compounded with peppermint oil if you put peppermint oil on an inflamed vestibule the patient's going to be screaming didn't you use something with tea tree oil? Oh my God. Yes. One night. Yes. Emu oil with tea tree oh, oil. Oh, I ordered this yeah. like homeopathic muscle ointment yeah. that said on the website it can be used internally. So in ter- the the regular version could be used internally. Obviously, I decided to order the extra strength version yeah. because that's just who I am. I need everything to be extra strength, extra whatever. <laughs> so I order the extra strength version, but I, I don't put two and two together that the extra strength version can't be used internally. So I put this inside my vagina one night and I'm literally up for <laughs> the entire night with the worst burning I have ever felt in my life. I'm like, I don't have Erica's number at the time, so I'm emailing her. <laughs> I'm like, Erica, I'm in so I'm much burning. pain. I'm burning. I'm freaking out. I don't know what to do. She wakes up in the morning from my like email at 3 a.m. And she's like, are you okay? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like the worst patient ever. Yeah. So no. So things like that. So you have to be careful what's in the topical yeah. agent. It was right? a lot of tea tree oil yeah. there. That was not good. Yeah. So things like that will really burn the area. Uh, then Valium suppositories are given out very frequently. So that's where they're using diazepam in like a waxy form that the patients are putting in like something like monostat with a applicator and they're putting that in vaginally or rectally and that helps reduce muscle spasm and generally it does help patients you can't be on it too long but they'll have them on it for a couple weeks maybe a couple months and then taper them off for uh, oral medications a tricyclic antidepressant is a great option and basically what the tricyclic antidepressant does is it in a very low dose it could help decrease nerve pain and then also gab- I'm, I, so no yeah. I, actually you continue and then yeah I'll- and then gabapentin just another alternate uh nerve medication lyrica cymbalta all these things are options for patients it totally depends on what the patient can tolerate what they like right you were mm-hmm. on two things at the same time yeah. which was tough for you yeah um i don't like the idea of medicine yeah. which is my own issue but you know yeah so it just depends on the patient and what their side effects a lot of side effects of these meds are dry mouth so you're already having bladder issues maybe because your pelvic floor is tight from the vulvodynia right Mm -hmm. and then they're getting dry mouth so they're drinking more water and that could cause some other symptoms and then also these these medications cause constipation too Mm -hmm. constipation can also make your pelvic floor flare so we have to control we have to basically see how the patient's reacting and then monitor all their right. symptoms and help them right. control it right yeah i'm still on a low dose of one of those medicines and i tried going off everything and i felt really good and then i don't know what happened and a lot of my symptoms came back and i went back on a really low dose of cymbalta which i'm not happy about being on but i don't know it's helping it helps and yeah. my doctors t- are telling me that it's a non-negotiable quote unquote yeah and i have to stay on it and these are holistic doctors. Like one of my doctors is a very holistic doctor. He's not, he does, is not a proponent of any sort of like uh, pharmaceutical. But for now, I think that it is keeping my nervous system calm. So, yeah, you know. And I think some of the goal of these meds and the goal of the physicians are to calm down the nervous system, yeah. right? To get all the nerves to fire 
more calmly mm-hmm. for lack of better word better mm-hmm. words but um, can i ask you a quick yeah, question because yeah. this is the question that i like always am struggling with if these medicines make you feel like a, a low dose of these medicines make you feel better and they make the nerve pain not i won't i don't want to say go away but much more manageable then when you go off the medicine isn't the nerve pain going to come right back no it's supposed to block the pain signals going to your brain right uh-huh. so at, you're supposed to taper off them slowly so that you're it's not like a hard stop mm-hmm. so that your mind can get used to blocking the nerve signal so that when the nerves stop firing so much to the area that they're not all of a sudden going to start firing again it's mm-hmm. already retrained your brain mm-hmm. okay and stop the pain cycle mm-hmm. so that's the goal mm-hmm. and that can happen by tapering off appropriately so maybe at first i didn't taper off appropriately yeah, you might and not my body kind of like or sometimes patients aren't on it long enough and yeah. they taper off and it's not enough so yeah. it's timing how to- long do patients or i mean that's a general question but how long do patients usually stay on these medicines? Honestly, it depends. Yeah. I would say six months to a year. Yeah. Six months to a year is typical. Uh-huh. But some people are on longer and some people are on shorter. Um, so it depends. Uh, some other uh, medical treatments that we see a lot are trigger point injections. So trigger point injections will be like lidocaine or arnica or even a little corticosteroid. And they're injecting the levator anti, the pelvic floor muscles, and trying to get the muscle to relax. Mm-hmm. So that's that could be helpful. Sometimes they're done in a series. Sometimes they're done one at a time. Either or, some patients really respond to it. Uh, I think that it's really good to get the pain to come down a notch. Yeah. I don't know if it's generally going to get rid of all the symptoms, but yeah. it's definitely going to bring the pain down a little bit. Uh, pudendal nerve block is also another option where they bathe the pudendal nerve with lidocaine and numbing lotion mm-hmm. and numbing lotion numbing ointment mm-hmm. um, or anesthetic to stop the nerves from firing the vestibule um, so that's another option then lastly there could be Botox injections where they're actually taking botulin toxin injecting it into the pelvic floor muscle and really getting it to relax so recently I had a patient that I saw for a year, she came in with similar to you, like constant yeast infections, UTIs was really treated not appropriately, a lot of antifungals and antibiotics. And she ended up doing really well with just manual pelvic floor muscle release, which we'll do in treatment, right? And then she got a series of trigger point injections where they just did lidocaine and arnica in her trigger point muscle, in the muscles that had trigger points. And she got the pain down to a level, right? And then she was also on a tricyclic antidepressant, like an amitriptyline in a low dose. So this went on for six months, and she really only had like 20% of her pain left, right? Eventually, she was like, I can't take anymore. I still have it a little bit. She went and got a Botox injection right in her pelvic floor muscle, and she did amazing, right? That just got rid of all of it. So, so sometimes you have to get down to a point of getting your muscles to relax and getting everything to fire appropriately. If you just have a little bit left, sometimes a Botox injection would be great. Yeah. So it totally depends on the patient. That might not be the first line of treatment I would pick, right? right? As a medical treatment. Right. So, yeah. I always say, like, you know, usually I'm feeling pretty good these days, but if I ever have a bad day, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get that injection, but I haven't done it yet, maybe. Yeah, um, I don't think you need to. Yeah, not right now. But yeah, we've gotten pretty far. I feel we like have gotten it. far. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah. And then, uh-huh. oh yeah. No, I was just going to say, so those are more, 
like medical treatments and then if you were going to suggest a few holistic treatments what would you say right so none of those like a physical therapist is going to give out right Mm -hmm. so as the patient comes in to see us well we would recommend pelvic floor physical therapy right because we could do so many things um that don't aren't medically involved right but um it's basically a lot of education right so first when the patient comes in if clothes are bothering them we want to we want to teach them maybe wearing looser clothes for now 100 percent cotton underwear mild soaps that aren't going to irritate them uh, giving them options for that we want to reduce triggers of inflammation we don't want them doing any abrasive physical activities such as biking maybe for the time being eventually you can get back to it but for now anything that's going to irritate the area uh we're going to do some myofascial release on muscle tissue internally and externally um around the region if they can tolerate it and and to their tolerance and then get the muscle tone to lower right so that the nerve can stop getting so irritated maybe if the muscle is very tight or stop the pain cycle basically And then if they're having pain with intercourse due to all this, you can give them dilators to use, which is basically like a medical dildo Mm -hmm. that you're starting from a small size to a larger size. And we're stretching the area and we're getting the patient to put something intravaginally in and having them use it until they don't have pain in the area so that they could tolerate it. So they're not associating something going into their vagina, such as a speculum or a tampon or any sort of sexual device going internally and and decreasing pain mm-hmm. with it um topical lidocaine will use in treatment if the patient gets it and it's compounded um but we don't do any pelvic floor strengthening i know kara talked about kegels and everything in the first uh podcast but no kegling for now if the if the pelvic floor and the muscles and everything is firing and too tight and and high tone it's just the last thing you want to do i actually was listening to a podcast today and uh it's like a podcast about dating and they were talking about how important it is to strengthen your pelvic floor and i was listening to this podcast and i was like i think that is misleading right because the thing is the when you have very high tone pelvic floor from some pain syndrome right your the muscle tone is going to be tight and it's going to be weak because it's firing so much it's it gets fatigued it's like holding your fist for an hour and then going to write something like mm-hmm. you're not gonna be able to write something because your hand's gonna be tired right so it's very similar to that so once we get the tone down to like a normal resting tone of your muscle mm-hmm. right then you could strengthen appropriately mm-hmm. and we like to strengthen functionally we're not going to tell people to go do kegels all day long because you're not standing around doing a bicep curl all day long right <laughs> yeah so we're going to have them do it functionally with their abdominal muscles, with movement. And so that it fits into their lifestyle and that they do it appropriately and not over fire everything all the time. Um, so what other things would be holistic? So diet changes for the patient. I know um, Hannah did this too, but, you know, eliminating any inflammatory producing foods. And we can help, a, we could help educate the patient at a baseline level mm-hmm. for this. We're not dietitians, we're not nutritionists. So if the patient really feels like, you know what, every time I've had patients say this to me, every time I drink red, red wine, you know, I'm getting a lot of itching on the vestibule. Like those are the patients that maybe, okay, maybe you need to get allergy tested. Maybe you need to see a nutritionist, a functional medicine physician mm-hmm. or doctor to, to get, you know, get everything in check and see what's irritating you. Right. 
um especially if you're a more sensitive person yeah like i i know i am i know when i can't drink red wine because even if i'm feeling great like it will make me feel not great right Uh exactly even like too much coffee i feel like everything just starts to act up i'm sensitive but some people aren't and yeah and sometimes when the these syndromes you know are become chronic Mm -hmm. like even a little coffee will inflame you when it used to not so totally depends um and then also getting the patient to use if they are sexually active and they're able to be when they're having vulvodynia um using very non um chemical products Mm -hmm. so using lubricants that are maybe water-based or Mm -hmm. organic or something like sustain where they do everything organically and there's not a lot of additives and especially condoms so sometimes spermicide could be very irritating for the patient the chemicals on this on the condoms um and latex Mm -hmm. so getting the patients to use uh certain types of condoms that might be uh easier for them to tolerate um and then oils too so you can put some oils vaginally uh cbd oil tends to help a lot of patients but you have vaginally vaginally yeah if you use cbd consistently Mm -hmm. that it helps maybe not once in a while but if you use it every day it tends to build on itself it helps i was using it for a while it helped Uh yeah it's Um, really expensive though so i stopped it i know um and it's really so expensive and it lasts like two weeks a bottle but it is a really good treatment it's a good treatment and it lowers it's supposed to lower nerve Uh yeah nerve um sensitivity cannabis oil if it's legal Uh is a great alternative that works even better than cbd um and coconut oil too can be soothing for the individual again depends on the patient some people do not like coconut oil avocado oil might work for someone you could use those oils as lubes too and use them as lubes right better than like a store-bought lube right Uh right olive oil apparently people like um email oil is supposed to be good if it doesn't have tea tree oil in it it's supposed to work um so yeah so those are some basic holistic treatments oh even getting a cushion to sit properly mm-hmm. so that your pelvis isn't slumped all the time and giving you know making your pelvic floor tighter than it needs to be mm-hmm. um and controlling constipation that's a big one um getting the patient on a bowel regimen that works for them so that they're not straining on the toilet and making their pelvic floor symptoms worse sometimes a flare-up of vulvodynia can happen if the patient's constipated for a week or traveled and they were constipated yeah. Um, because flaring that mu- the muscle tension will also flare the nerve and yeah. inflame the vestibule. I have a lot of experience with yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, haven't we all? Right. Yeah. So taking magnesium is you told yeah. me that. Now I like take magnesium every night, but it helps you go to the bathroom in the morning. Yeah, and magnesium helps you sleep. It helps your muscles, mm-hmm. and it definitely can help um, as as almost like a natural laxative. Yeah. Um, you just have to like make sure that your magnesium levels are in check with the physician but and only certain magnesium yeah like certain forms of magnesium are used for to help you go to the bathroom like others are for muscles or whatever i think it's like magnesium citrate and oxide and oxide helps you go to the bathroom yeah Uh uh-huh so both those and then if nothing else works all these things fail medications all the holistic treatments you can get a vestibulectomy so that's a surgery where they do like a horseshoe horseshoe shaped surgical repair of the vulvar vestibular tissue um, in the vagina while the patient is under anesthesia um, the success rate is variable so i've heard things that it's 50 to 60 percent success rate to 90 percent success rate mm-hmm. uh and what they do is they're we've take- never talked about this wow. oh we never have no. yeah so um i only bring it up really if the yeah. patient 
has been suffering for a long time and this is like the last resort and the success rate is variable but you know I've had patients that it's done wonders on and then I've had patients that it hasn't helped um six weeks post-surgery the patient comes in we do some night uh light stretching of the tissue to reduce any scar tissue and dilator work and and do that post-surgery and it it can be very beneficial for a patient mm-hmm. so but that's, that's the like last, last resort last 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 yeah. resort most people probably oh, can be cured yes like 95 yes. percent. yes people. if they have the right physicians the yeah. right pt and you know right diet bowel bladders in check you're 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 good okay yeah yeah and been checked by the dermatologist yes okay yeah good to know so yeah so that's vulvodynia and then well i think you gave like an example of what a patient would look like like a patient yeah. with vulvodynia would what what they like how they would present themselves yeah and they present you know with burning itching rawness that they don't know where it's coming from right mm-hmm. It could be, like I said before, provoked or unprovoked. It could be, it could start with a new sexual partner. Yeah. You know, that's someone different than your old partner, that your vaginal ecology with that patient's, you know, body part is not, the patient's, you know, significant other's body part is just, they're not matching. Right. And it's in, the vestibule is becoming inflamed for whatever reason. And, right. And, um, you know, it's really, it's patient specific and, if the patient is hypermobile in their joints and they're like a big yogi and can flex and are very flexible, strengthening around, strengthening their joints and muscles around their joints might be helpful, right? Because then they're not using their pelvic floor to stabilize them because they're so Mm loosey-goosey. So it's totally patient-specific. Okay. Yeah. Um, And then... Can we next talk about PGAD, which is persistent genital arousal disorder? And I think that this has a close correlation to vulvodynia. A lot of patients with vulvodynia probably have PGAD or don't. I mean, it depends. It depends. Yeah, it depends. But if you have if you have PGAD, you definitely have vulvodynia, probably. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, if you well, not necessarily. Oh. I mean, they're both like nerve nerve um related yeah nerve related Mm -hmm. so pgad is also a pelvic pain disorder which a lot of people associate as like a sexual dysfunction but that's not true at all so Mm -hmm. it's definitely pelvic pain and these patients are in like vulvodynia they're in agonize they're agonizing over it It pretty much feels like you're about to have an orgasm all the time exactly or very or very um like uh you feel like it's like persistent feeling of general arousal right with or without orgasm and constant clitoral sensitivity, right? Uh-huh. So how uncomfortable is that? Like you're having, you're in college, you're sitting in a class, and you feel like you're going to orgasm. I mean, there's nothing worse than that, right? No. Um, so it's unrelated to any feelings of sexual desire. It could pop up out of nowhere, which is scary, right? Mm-hmm. Um, PGAD per- occurs pr- predominantly in women, but there are men who definitely experience it as well. Do you treat men who have? Yes, that? yes, but mostly women. Women, yeah, yeah. Uh, the symptoms include tingling feeling in their clitoris or genitals, general throbbing or irritation, and even sp- spontaneous orgasms. And they can last for days or a few hours. It could be really torturous for the patient. People actually have orgasms yeah, with PGAD? Yeah, you can. You can have constant orgasms. Yep. And they're and it doesn't relieve the symptom. And that's the worst part out of the or, or out of the orgasm, right? Like with no stimulation, you just have with an no orgasm. no stimulation. Yep. I actually did not know that. Yeah. 
So um, they're very different. Like the symptoms of PGAD are very different than what happens during sexual arousal. Because like I said before, they occur with no sexual interest. Um, and they're, the symptoms are often unwanted and unpleasant, right? Like that's the last thing you want when you're like sitting at a bar. So how friends. is, how, for example, is this orgasm occurring? From nerves firing? From nerves over firing in the area. Okay. So that could be from, I'll give you I'm an learning so much. Right now. <laughs> I thought I knew so much, but you know, you never know everything. You, yeah, yeah. Like, so PGAT can be triggered by like something like constipation and straining for a long time mm-hmm. that your muscles are 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 straining and and they're they're overused due to constipation or like bad stool consistency and the muscles so there is a nerve called the dorsal nerve to the clitoris that comes off the pudendal nerve it's a branch of the pudendal nerve so when the muscles of the pelvic floor spasm they could irritate that nerve and when that nerve gets set set off that's when that clitoral stimulation happens Mm-hmm. Okay, and there's also a dorsal nerve to the penis. So it's the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So con- like constipate. Like I just recently had someone who had const- a really bad bout of constipation for like two weeks straight that she never, ever had. And that's what set it off. Her PGAD. Her PGAD, right. But when she so, went to the bathroom, did the symptoms go away? No. No, it just set it off and it was constant. Yeah. So that just, that was that patient, right? So like how long ago was this? This was eh, maybe three months ago. Oh, three months ago. Yeah, yeah. But like after a few weeks or like a week, did the symptoms go away? Um, it took no. It took like a month. It took a month, but we'll talk about it. But uh-huh. uh, we she was on other medications stuff to control it. Uh huh. But it took a it took a team to oh to get it down. Uh huh. Um, but like even like a workout class gone wrong. Right. Stilettos if the pelvis is offset or the muscles are already kind of in spasm and then you did something to like really push it over the edge and then it irritates the nerve. Mm-hmm. So that's how this can happen. It just unfortunately hits the dorsal nerve to the clitoris. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so living with PGAD is super distracting and can be like really debilitating for the patient. So it can completely consume the individual. And with this dysfunction, like I said before, masturbation or orgasm doesn't provide relief. Would it actually make it worse? It could make it worse because it also makes the it makes the muscle constantly spasm. Right. Okay. So it's really it's not it's not it's a horrible uh, symptom to have a, a yeah. diagnosis to have. And anyone who's listening to this, if you have PGAD, it is something that can be worked on yes. and fixed. Like. You are not going to live that way forever. And you're also like, don't think that there's something incredibly wrong with you. Like it's actually common. A lot of people have it and a lot of people are able to make it go away. Yeah. Through the proper treatment. Yeah. Um, and then it also like PIA could also be a secondary symptom to something else. So like I said, we're constipation, but like IBS or like a vaginal surgery. So actually with another patient that I had that had PIA, she had a labiaplasty when she was younger because. What's at, a labiaplasty? So what happens uh-huh. is they actually, one of her labia minora was longer than the other side of mm-hmm. her labia minora. So when she was like 15 years old, she had gone to the gynecologist. It was bothering her, I guess, the way it looked. So they did a labiaplasty where they actually cut it off and made it even. But there might have been scar tissue from, and she actually had it done twice because it wasn't done right the first time. Oh she had God. it done twice and then there was scar tissue that actually occurred like underneath the surgery. Uh-huh. And then she had some scar tissue over the dorsal nerve to clitoris. So with 
something else. It might have been like a workout class or something she did. It just all of a sudden put it over the edge like years later, like seven years later. And she, she started was fine having for PGAD. seven years. Yep. Yep. Wow. So so you never know, right? And it could is be she a lot okay now? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It went away. So these are like success stories. Right. Yeah. So it does yeah. go away. Yeah. Uh-huh. It does. Um, but it totally depends on how you're being treated, right? Um, but also it can come out of nowhere too, yeah. which is harder to understand. Yeah. But so. I feel like physical therapy is the most helpful thing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of an overview um, of what PGAD is, right? And do you treat it the same way as you tr- would treat vulvodynia? So treating, uh, all right, so medically, right? What are they doing with these patients? So tricyclic antidepressants uh-huh. are right, like what we said before. Because it's also nerve pain. It's a nerve pain med. Right. Zoloft is a, is a great med for patients to take mm-hmm. um, with PGAD. Wait, hold on. Let me just preface by saying nothing that is said on this podcast should be done without first consulting with a doctor. Oh, so yeah. don't listen to this podcast and then, you know, take action with a certain medicine or a certain thing that we've been talking about. Like, this is just a conversation, but everything that you do with regarding your own health should first be consulted by your physician with. Right. And like the doctor, this is when you have the conversation. Listen, I heard that these meds exactly. might work. Exactly. Um, what would Zoloft do for me for PGAD? Zoloft is a medication that can lower your libido and lower the nerve firing in that area. So that's a great option for patients, you know, if they could tolerate it. Mm-hmm. You know, not everyone that works for, they might need an amitriptyline. They might need a Cymbalta. They might need a Lyrica. Mm-hmm. So Those I, are all different. Yeah, all different nerve medications, medicine. right? So um, that may reduce discomfort. That's an option. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times if it's very bad and the patient's having chronic symptoms, they have to be on something. Yeah, just to calm it down. Yeah. Um, so also you could use like a TENS unit, which is helpful. So a TENS unit you could use. I don't, I wouldn't suggest putting a vaginal sensor in with a TENS unit. But TENS unit is electrical stimulation that could actually block pain receptors in the area. So maybe just putting a TENS unit around the area. A on TENS the, unit is like, a, is it $25, 30 yeah, on Amazon. you can order on Amazon? Yeah. yeah. Put it on the inside of your thighs. You could put it on your low back. And sometimes that will help block pain. Uh-huh. I, I use it. I, I have um, like foot pain and I put it on my foot. It actually helps. Yeah, it could definitely help. Yeah. Um, you could put it on any muscle that yeah. you have muscle pain exactly. anywhere in your body. It would help. Exactly. Maybe. And then hormone related medications uh, can be recommended as well as the anti-androgen meds to decrease sensation um, in the area when topically applied. Uh, and then stopping use of certain medications, which can be aggravators of PGAD. So don't like not literally, but maybe something like an Adderall or a Ritalin if the patient's on that. And that's, you know, increasing their nervous system or decreasing their nervous system, but it might be making their muscles tenser, could be irritating. And it's like, put it, yeah. and those medications like put your body in fight or flight mode. Exactly. So like they're creating adrenaline, they're creating your nerves to fire even more than they already are, which would make sense that that would exacerbate the symptoms. Yeah. Even like it's important, simple things like avoiding coffee, which puts your body in fight or flight. I mean, not that that would totally take your symptoms away, but like little things like that also do help. Like avoiding stress, which puts your body in fight or fight or flight would help calm your nervous system and in turn calm the nerve pain. And yeah, exactly. So, um, 
And then, uh, oh, they'll also use trigger point injections for the patients. Like I said before with Bulbodynia. Mm-hmm. So they will actually do like a lidocaine or a mix of the cocktail of things in the in the muscle to calm it down they could also use botox injections and they could do it near the dorsal nerve to the clitoris to relax the region and calm down the nerve uh we've seen success with patients who've seen just a series of trigger point injections mm-hmm. so that might be all you need with maybe a low dose of zoloft right right and then pelvic floor therapy can i ask you a question yeah um for the patients that get injections do they usually have to have repeated sessions of injections or like does it does one injection work or are they going back every few months and how long do the injections last the benefits like how long do that last for or you know do the symptoms come back after a few months or like does it take the pain away forever yeah so with the trigger point injections they may only last two weeks they Mm -hmm. may last a month for the patient they may last forever it totally depends on how what the tone is of the muscle mm-hmm. before going in. So if it's a very high tone, it might not work as well. They maybe need to get What their, do you mean by tone? Like tightness. Oh, uh-huh. If their muscle is like extremely tight and in spasm, maybe a trigger point injection won't work right away. You, might, you might need to get a more. series. Uh-huh. Yeah. If you can get the tone, the muscle tone down a little bit, the spasm down a little bit, and then they go in for a trigger point injection, it might work better. Yeah. Depends on the patient. But it actually does relax the muscle. It That's does what it's help doing. relax. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, and then, yeah. So, so those definitely, it's, it's an option. Yeah. And you know what? If you can, if it's in your price range or your insurance is covering it, why not try it? Yeah. You know? And like, not, because I don't like to say that that's something that people should do like first, but if you've tried more holistic treatments such as physical therapy and trying to manage like maybe have a better diet and manage constipation then it's something that is there for you right so like holistic stuff right Mm -hmm. acupuncture is a great option for these patients with anything right with the volodynia and with pdad calming down the nervous system they can also do dry needling on muscle points that are very tight, which is just they're they're taking a acupuncture needle and releasing a trigger point in a muscle. Yeah. So that could be great too. Uh, definitely, acu- like I think simultaneously if a patient's going to acupuncture and PT at the same time, I think it's such a great match. I agree. You guys have an amazing uh, acupuncture. Yeah. two of them at, yeah. at Five Point Physical Therapy. Um, I saw both of them. It was, it was really helpful for me. Like, when I was having really bad pain, the acupuncture helped actually a lot, I think. But then after the pain started to go away and like it was still lingering but wasn't excruciating, I couldn't really tell as much of a benefit from it. But I think it is regardless. A good option. A good option. Yeah, exactly. It's a great option. Um, and then, you know, using lidocaine or even ice, like you could mm-hmm. take like a rubber glove and like put ice in the fingers and then freeze them and then you can insert that vaginally if that maybe it can, like, bring inflammation down yeah it can bring inflammation down and meditation is good to calm yes, the nervous exactly. system exactly you read my mind like meditation or cbd uh cbt yeah. therapy yeah um cognitive well, behavioral yeah. therapy i've been reading a lot about that yeah so that's its form of psychotherapy that they'll use um it's just a specific type that helps change the way your thoughts are yeah um, and it's like meditation. Yeah. So things like that should all be done and consistently done before you're trying injections, before you're trying Botox, right. before you're trying, 
you know, those things are, are not harmful, right? And they're beneficial for everyone. For everyone, exactly. Yeah. And I also think that for anyone who has chronic pain, it's really important to, I mean, not for anyone, but a lot of people with chronic pain could benefit from seeing a psychologist or a psychi- psychiatrist only because like when you're, when you have pain, you're depressed and you're upset and you're emotional and it's helpful to have someone who you can talk about it with who's like trained to to really be able to listen and understand and the one thing that i will say is that if you are seeing someone which someone which i do recommend um is to make sure that they're familiar with the pelvic floor and with pelvic pain or i mean chronic pain at the least because yeah i was seeing a therapist um for a few months and she was not familiar she was a good therapist but she wasn't familiar with chronic pain at all and she wasn't familiar with like pelvic pain or bladder pain or anything related to that and I stopped seeing her because I mean it got to the point where I just like she didn't really know what I was talking about at all so and I was on different medicines and she wasn't a psychiatrist so she didn't know what the medicines were that I was on and it would just anyways long story short it got to the point where it was not beneficial so I think it is helpful to be able to talk to someone about what you're going through and especially someone who has experience in that area and yeah interestingly enough like I have someone um recently that had PGAD since Mm -hmm. she was in high school Mm -hmm. right and she ended up thinking that she was a sex addict because right because she was constantly having these sexual arousal symptoms so she was sent to a sex therapist Uh and they did sex therapy and you know whatever but the sex therapist might have not known what pgad was so she ended up it didn't help her symptoms you know Uh she did have you know it was it was beneficial in some way right but she ended up um being diagnosed properly sent to pelvic floor therapy and now is with the right therapist as well for for psych and and it's been a great match yeah she's done great but you know you see things like that and it takes time to like find the right people yeah and and you don't know sometimes you're like oh my god maybe i am a sex addict you know what do you you know if you're not in the medical professor profession or familiar with any of this yeah especially if you've had something your whole life you're used to it you think that that's like normal exactly takes you a while to realize that that's not actually the way that you should be feeling exactly um okay so yeah so that's pgad pgad um bladder pain syndrome is next okay um so bladder pain again is related to pelvic pain yeah is it's a form of pelvic pain um and bladder pain is a huge topic but we're gonna try and briefly cover it yeah so with bladder pain syndrome we see a lot of this where the patient or client is coming in and they're having pain when their bladder is full or when they're urinating or post-urination. And it could be that their pelvic floor is just in spasm or they have bad bladder habits. So these are the patients that if they're coming in, 
we want them to have already seen the urogynecologist or the urologist where they've ruled out anything else going on, right? So they would do your dynamic testing to see how the bladder fills and empties with the patient. They would maybe do a cystoscopy, which opens up the bladder and they can look at the bladder lining. Uh, so they're doing a series of tests and they're saying, okay, there's nothing else going on. You don't have UTIs. You don't have anything anything serious it's probably just your pelvic floor not working properly and bad bladder habits my case right which comes along with a lot of other diagnoses right Mm -hmm. but for a while Um, i was like told that there was things wrong with my bladder and i needed to take medication and i remember i got a cystoscopy and then one of my doctors said i didn't get the right cystoscopy so i had to get another cystoscopy and they put you under anesthesia for one and not for the the other other. yeah. yeah it was like a whole mess but yeah at the end of it all there was nothing wrong. Right. And with bladder pain syndrome, there could be pain in your urethra, in your vulva, in your vagina, in your rectum, low back, abdominal pain, right? It's all part of this. Um, and these diagnoses make patients feel like they constantly have to urinate. And even after they empty their bladder, they still have urgency. So it basically makes you feel like you have a UTI all the time. Uh, a normal urination is four to seven times a day, right? And maybe one time at night, unless you're over like 55 or 62 times as normal. But however, when you have bladder pain syndrome, a patient can urinate up to like 15 to 25 times a day, mm-hmm. right? Um, with a ton of urgency. So, and are they, are they actually urinating each time they go or they're only, they only feel like they have to urinate or like maybe like a drop will come out or are they having full urination? So it definitely depends, but mm-hmm. the patients will generally, if they're going that many times a day, are sitting on the toilet and having a three-second urination right. or that. a drop come out, and they're still having a ton you of You told me, I remember, that uh, a few months ago, you told me that a, f- a, a proper urination should be seven seconds long. You should be able to count seven Mississippis, yeah. and that's when you know that your bladder is full and you're having a proper urination yeah. so like i'll generally tell you, and this is such like a rough estimate you yeah. really should like measure it with a cup but you know if someone's out and they're like feel like they're having a lot of frequency and i'm telling them if there's nothing else going on but bad bladder habits and pelvic floor spasm if they're urinating less than seven mississippis or six mississippis you know they shouldn't have urinated right that maybe they could have held it longer right and maybe they just were giving into an urge when you can hold off so we always tell a patient with your bladder you can actually hold off an urge with your bowels you always want to go when you have an urge mm-hmm. so you can retrain your bladder by holding your bladder and we'll talk about that mm-hmm. in a little bit um but yeah so there, there's constant irritation in the bladder and it causes increased sensitivity so that even if there's a small amount of liquid in the bladder the bladder is spasming and spasming and giving you a full urge to urinate so and that's nerve related as well that that's bad that's habit, habit related oh, uh-huh. and it's like a nerve it's a nerve uh feedback loop so right. when your bladder relaxes and fills right your pelvic floor is in a more contracted state Mm -hmm. not to say it's like very contracted just a little bit right it allows your bladder to fill when your bladder fills enough where it has to it's ready to empty and it so it sends a a loop to your brain saying or message your brain hey i have to go now i'm full then the brain tells your muscles and the nerves right to relax Mm -hmm. and let the bladder squeeze all all the urination out Mm -hmm. Okay, so when this loop gets messed up and the pelvic floor is spasming for some some reason, it could be, you know, 
other reasons, right? Posture, mm-hmm. you know, clenching, trauma, anything like that, it could mess up the feedback loop. Mm-hmm. So the bladder doesn't know when it's supposed to tell the brain it has to go. So it could tell the brain it has to go to the bathroom only when it fills up a little bit when it's supposed to fill up a lot. Yeah, it's so weird. Like my vulvodynia symptoms, the burning and the itching is much better i said earlier but it's like probably at least 80 85 better some days 90 percent. but the one thing that's so weird erica is that i still always feel like i have to pee even right after i pee and i'm i hold it for two hours like usually i'm able to count seven mississippis when i am peeing but i have i guess it's like that sensation that the second my bladder fills up i get the signal to my brain that i have to go and i don't know why it's like because that's the feedback loop that's away. been happening for so long yeah. that it may just take time to stop yeah. the loop, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's your automatic reaction. That's what you felt for so long. Right. So as you continually get better, hopefully it will, it will go come. away. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then um, similarly to vulvodynia, the, with bladder pain, these patients can be diagnosed with UTIs for years. Um, even though there's negative urine cultures, mm-hmm. I've had patients so many patients get antibiotics still um and when they're given antibiotics over time like this it could mess up the vaginal flora and the ecosystem causing more irritation of the whole area yeah and changing the ph and changing your gut and if your gut and your you have constipation or ibs or diarrhea that can also make the pelvic floor flare and the muscle spasm and mess up the bladder uh loop again and trigger like more pelvic pain exactly yeah exactly so yeah, that, that's the bad cycle of right. bladder pain syndrome. And there's also oh. yeah, there's also probably like placebo effect. I would assume if patients are on these antibiotics and maybe like, do they think that they're like part of part of you would probably like maybe think a little bit that you feel better because you're taking medicine, but then in the long term you you're not getting better, right? Right. So it, it, you feel maybe feel like slight relief right, right away, but if it comes back and you're taking antibiotics again, like it might not help. Yeah. So especially if the cultures are negative, you have to think to yourself, okay, maybe this isn't a UTI. Maybe this isn't, you know, a yeast infection. I heard a statistic um, recently. I forgot what the exact statistic was. Now I'm like really curious to look it up. But I think it was something along the lines of like 80% of antibiotics prescribed are not necessary. Right. Right. So like most of the time, if you think you need an antibiotic or your doctor is giving it to you, like... I mean, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but like odds are you really might not need that antibiotic. Right. And if you did need the antibiotic, you need to make sure that you're on the proper probiotic yes. during and after. Yes. To make Very sure important. that your flora is recorrected. I agree. So, yeah. So, and those are things that your physician should be able to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Oh, and then interstitial cystitis is a form of bladder pain syndrome that fits a specific criteria. So there's a number of things that go under interstitial cystitis. Um, they have very strong bladder pain. Mm-hmm. Same thing, pain with urination, pain post. Um, and these patients you'll really see that are urinating like 25 times a day. It can be associated with endometriosis. It might not be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's diagnosed by having a cystoscopy and with the cystoscopy, they look at the bladder lining mm-hmm. and they're seeing if there's ulcers along the bladder lining that are causing some of these symptoms. My cousin was recently diagnosed with endometriosis and she had the surgery to remove, 
I guess it's like the tissue that builds up. Yeah. But when they were doing the surgery, they actually told her that they saw that she had IC and she's 28 and she just within the past year or so was diagnosed with endometriosis and she's had symptoms her whole life and diagnosed with IC, which is like, it's a kind of a while to not know that you had those right. two problems, those two diagnoses. Right. And they can go hands in hand or they can go separately. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, that was my, that's what yeah. I was getting at. <laughs> yeah. So interstitial is a more drastic form of bladder pain syndrome. Um, Wait, so hold on. Yeah. Sorry. No. Um, just a quick question that I have is, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but if you have endometriosis, how does, how does that trigger you to have IC? Or is that not like, does that not, is that not the right question to ask? I Like, why are they related? You I know what I mean? I think they're both inflammatory conditions yes, of the body. That, that's it. That's and exactly. I think that maybe it's your body reacting. Yeah. Um, but don't call me on that. Okay, I won't. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Keep going. Um, but you generally might see it together. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah. So, that's generally like bladder pain syndrome. And then, uh, like, what what would you see medically, right? Right. With, with, the, with bladder pain. Um, sometimes they'll do bladder installation. So that's a cocktail of multiple medications that they actually do. They inject or insert into the bladder. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's an anesthetic, like a mix of a lidocaine, a procaine, and then a med- medication called Almiron. Um, and that can help uh, reduce inflammation in the bladder. And, right. You know, sometimes it helps people. Most of the time I've seen it, it doesn't help. It doesn't, but- Yeah. They'll do that like every week or do like 10 installations. It just depends on the urologist. That's why you also have to be like careful with those. I think more so for the bladder pain. Yeah. Because those are like more short, very short term. Very short term. And like it, if it's not working the first time, I wouldn't keep getting them. I agree. Yeah. Um, Pudental nerve block is an option to help relieve any sort of nerves firing in the area. Mm -hmm. It can help relax the bladder a little bit. Um, some patients will put a pessary in and what that is, is it is a, like almost like a donut shaped plastic ring Mm -hmm. that they'll put if someone has a bladder prolapse, which is like bladder descending into your vaginal canal more. It could be due to childbirth or like straining or or it could be. Could it prolapse into your rectum? Yeah. It could prolapse My grandma into, has yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that can, that means that like your organs and are not. And she had PGAD. And she had IC, right? She had PGAD. She had IC. She had vulvodynia. She had everything. Yeah. I guess it runs in the family. Yeah. But she, I think, got PGAD. It was scar tissue from the prolapse surgery. Yeah. So sometimes if you have a prolapse, they'll put a pessary in to lift uh-huh. the organ up. They'll lift up the rectum, lift up the bladder. They put it in via surgery. Um, no, oh. you could just put it in like the urogynecologist oh. will fit it for you and put Got it in it. and it floats up. Uh-huh. Um, and sometimes that could help with bladder pains. pain syndrome. It could take some pressure off the urethra. It can allow urine to flow better. Uh-huh. Um, but that it's totally dependent. That may help a patient. It may not. Right. Usually used for prolapse, maybe used for a bladder pain syndrome or urinary frequency. But again, that's probably one of the last forms of treatment. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. you could try it. It's not really, it's, you know, it's not it's really not a medication right. or anything. Right. So, um, it's an option. You could also, you, they are also are Botox injections that can be put, injected into the bladder muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never actually seen it really help a patient but it could help the bladder muscle calm down and mm-hmm. uh but some side effects it can cause leakage so 
is not really like the greatest option, but it's an option. Mm-hmm. And there's also um, bladder medications to control urinary frequency, to control urgency. Let And there are medications that allow the bladder to fill more before mm-hmm. it tells you you have to go to the bathroom. So there's a bunch of different meds that you could try. Right. So there are also options. Um, tricyclic antidepressants are also another way to calm down the nervous system and calm down your bladder. Mm-hmm. So those are like the medical treatments basic overview and then would you treat like in terms of more holistic treatments in physical therapy would you treat well I guess all physical therapy pretty much more or less treat the same way for yeah so regardless of what what the issue is like you you use the same techniques yeah so we're gonna we're gonna treat what you see right yeah so if the patient has a very high muscle tone we're gonna release it and then we're gonna strengthen after right Right? Regardless so, of whether it's like for no bladder pain or vulvodynia yeah. or PGAD. Like, because you can get really caught up in the diagnoses, but we're just treating muscle, right? Muscle. It's all related to your yeah. muscle. Uh-huh. So we're treating muscle. So we're going to treat what we see. Right. And the best thing we could do with bladder pain syndrome is bladder education. So the patient comes in and I'm like, okay, you have to do a bladder diary for me. It's like, oh, so, I hate it. The I know. Bladder it's so diaries. annoying. It's annoying, but Every it's the week, most important. You'd be like, did you do bladder diary? Yeah. I'd be like, scratch my head. Yeah. Oh, I did it for like, maybe like five hours. Yeah. But you have to do I know. it. because I did do it. Yeah. Because it, it shows us like, what is the patient really doing? Yeah. Are they peeing every half hour? Are they peeing every two hours? It, are they holding too long? Right. Are they letting their bladder fill too much? And then it's spasming. So... We have to really, really see what's going on. And that's the best overview. So we make the patient do that. And like what specifically are you looking for in the bladder diary? So what we're looking for is bladder frequency, Uh right? If they're going every half hour, the next time they come in, we're going to say, okay, let's push it off a little bit. Can you go every 40 minutes? Can you go every 45? Right. All right. So we're trying to see where we can get them to to increase an interval of, Mm -hmm. right? And you want to increase me by 10, 15 minutes every week if the patient can tolerate it. Okay, and then we're also looking to see, are they waking up at night? How many times are they waking up at night? Um, and then I always make them write down what they're drinking. Mm-hmm. So bladder um, bladder irritants and are huge, right? Yeah. So things like even carbonated beverages can make you have bladder pain and irritation and urgency. Seltzer, like patients will drink seltzer and they think they're drinking water. We take out seltzer, their symptoms are gone. No way. Yeah. So I recently today had someone. <laughs> yeah. I've so, actually started drinking because I cut out like all alcohol actually for like six months now. Um, just because it, I don't know. I don't like drinking alcohol. But anyways, now I, I don't know. I guess I picked up the habit of drinking carbonated water because it like kind of tastes refreshing. Right. Out. It fulfills like, so, your like alcohol need. Like right? a little bit yeah. kind of in yeah. like a really weird and ridiculous way. Yeah, exactly. But um. But now I've been, and I've never drinking carbonated water in my life until the past few months. And I've been drinking it a lot now. And I actually think I'm going to stop. Yeah. So that could also irritate your bladder. I Um, think it may. Things like, you know, obviously like alcohol, coffee, and coffee, decaf or caffeinated coffee will irritate your bladder. You know, it's the acidity. Decaf is just as acidic, right? Exactly. Okay. And acidity, like the acidity. Any teas, I mean, herbal teas are the best teas to drink, but Mm -hmm. like if a patient needs something hot, we'll say, okay, maybe you can have an herbal tea, but I don't really like any of the teas either. That gives you a lot of bladder urgency as well. Right. Wait, Um, public service announcement. Yeah. Um, There is this tea. It's cinnamon cardamom tea. The brand is Celestial. (laughs) It is the best invention to ever walk this earth (laughs) literally have gotten like more people than i can tell you turned on to it i just ordered six boxes 
And my other coworker ordered, no, she ordered six and we split the order because she's like, I don't need six boxes. I'm like, fine, I'll Venmo you for three of them. That's so funny. But it is so good. It's like sweet, naturally sweet. I don't know why. It helps me when I don't want to drink coffee. It's weirdly a good coffee replacement and I don't think anything is a good coffee replacement. So yeah, everyone should buy That's that. That's so funny. Yeah, so like something like, or like tea mint tea is good. Mint tea, like chamomile, like something like I wouldn't maybe have cinnamon if you have like bladder pain because it could. It's like really? a spice. It's a spice. Oh, sorry. But, no, no, no. <laughs> but like honestly, if that yeah. feels better than something else, and you need to have something hot, it's not the worst thing. Yeah. Right. Um. So doing like really like educating the patient, telling them that they should be able to sit through the movie Titanic. Yeah. You know things like that is so eye opening to someone. Uh-huh. Um. And it's just basic education, not squatting or hovering over the toilet. Like unless that it's was a Kara's por- tip. Last yeah, 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 yeah. She was like, do not yeah. squat. Yeah. Like unless it's a porta potty, you know. Right. At a concert, you right. know. <laughs> but anything else, like please don't. Uh-huh. So. So all of those things, it's it's there's so much education with bladder, and then when we talk about GI stuff and bowel, there's so much education, because so, bad habits can really like the more you're urinating, giving into your frequency, the the less your bladder is going to need to fill before it tells you you have to pee, mm-hmm. basically. So um, and then be, like the more water you drink, which I know Hannah is going to mention later, but the more water you drink, it's going to allow your bladder to fill more with less irritation. Right. Than having these drinks that are, are going to be acidic and concentrated and more viscous mm-hmm. that are going to only allow your bladder to fill a little bit before it tells you you have to urinate. Mm-hmm. So all that um, guided imagery and distraction techniques we use for patients to have them hold off an urge. Um, walking to the bathroom, not running, right? Because right. running to the bathroom is going to tell your brain, oh my God, I got to go, I got to go. It's going to make your bladder spasm. Walking to the bathroom, maybe not urinating right away when you get up in the morning. Take a mug out of the cabinet. That's Put, what you told me. It yeah. was so helpful. Yeah, it's super helpful. Or walking to your apartment, like hang up your jacket before you run to the bathroom. Right. You know, little things like that is mind games to help your mind calm down and control your bladder. I remember you told me that um, like even when you asked me, do you go to the bathroom before you leave the house every day? And I was like, yes, of course I do. And you're like, okay, try not going to the bathroom before you leave the house. Like see if you can make it to work and yeah. then go to the bathroom at work. Like, you know, you could wake up in the morning and go, but then let's say it takes you an hour to get ready or however long you spend in the morning at home before you leave, like wait until you get to your office or school or wherever you're going and then go again. And it worked like I didn't have to actually go like right. I could hold off easily until I got to wherever I was going and like even you would also t- you also told me which was so helpful let's say you're at work and you're like working on a project and you're you think you have to go to the bathroom can you work on it for 10 more minutes or like can you finish one other thing or can you do one more thing around the house or like can you clean for another 15 minutes or organize another drawer or, like whatever it is like can you give yourself one more task in order to distract yourself so that you can just hold off a little bit longer and odds are you will definitely be able to. Exactly. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. So it's playing mind games with yourself, really. But, you know, this is like, uh, you know, it's distraction training and it's getting you to change the way your mind is telling your nervous system to do something. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really important. There are other options, like, again, like if you have a lot of bladder pain, you could use a TENS or electrical stim in the region to help relax and and distract your bladder stop some pain signals to your bladder 
Um, there is evidence that shows that if you put the stim unit on the inside of your ankle near your posterior tibial nerve, that's actually that nerve has the same innerva- innervations as the bladder. Mm-hmm. And if you put it there, I, I read a study that if you did it 12 weeks for 30 minutes a day for 12 weeks and you put it on the inside of your ankle, the TENS unit helps control bladder pain. Um, the patient's had relief. That. Yeah, I'll show you exactly where to put the yeah. points. That's helpful. Um, and then also some supplements. D-mannose with cranactin is very helpful. It could help coat the bladder lining mm-hmm. to stop any irritation. Um, prelief is something you could take before you have like spicy food or alcohol to help coat your bladder. Um, Cystoprotec is another option. So these are all things. Azo can sometimes be helpful. Aloe, right? Course. Aloe, yeah. So all of these things are helpful for patients and they're holistic. So, um, I'm trying to think if I hit on all the points. Well, that's a basic point. I think points. you did. Yeah. 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 So. There's a lot to be mindful of. And it's just like the day-to-day habits that, you know, for years, like even the first 20 years of your life, 30 years, 40 years, whatever it is, like you could have bad habits and your body might not react at all. And then eventually it your body it you. catches up to you and it's just like learning what the bad habits are and reversing them exactly and this is only if everything else is ruled out and they know it's like bad habits and pelvic floor dysfunction right there's something else going on you'll be treated differently but these are what you do if that's what the diagnosis comes down to exactly um okay i think we covered enough for yeah yeah we did a lot (laughs) this is all heads are probably spinning now Uh, mine's spinning a little bit yeah um but anyway so that was more than enough information for today and we will definitely do many more episodes on other diagnoses of pelvic floor dysfunction um but to wrap up this episode as we will as we did for the last episode and as we will do for all future episodes uh we're going to give two tips one from me and one from erica So my tip of this week is to always make sure that you are staying hydrated and drinking a lot of water throughout the day. I know this may sound like a stupid and boring tip, but I'm not kidding how important it is. Besides for the obvious fact that staying hydrated throughout the day is crucial for everything in your body, it is especially important for people who have any sort of bladder problems such as pain, pressure, frequency, urgency, or irritation as we just talked about. The reason why it's so important to stay hydrated throughout the day, and I don't mean like a cup of water in the morning and a cup of water at night. I mean like a large glass of water at least every hour. So the reason for this is because if you are not hydrated enough, your urine will actually become more acidic, which will cause additional bladder and urethral irritation. So however, if you are hydrated, your urine will be much less acidic, which will consequently help ease bladder pain and discomfort. Um, I know that I've noticed for myself if I'm dehydrated. I remember once I walked into the five point physical therapy and I said to Erica, I was like, I'm in so much pain. And I literally just chugged a huge bottle of water and 20 minutes later I went to the bathroom and I actually felt relief. So exactly. Yeah, it, it really does help. And it really is, I think, a very important tip. But um In addition, it's important to stay hydrated because it also will help you to have regular bowel movements, which is also crucial for anyone who has pelvic pain. Um, If you have pelvic pain, being constipated puts extra pressure on your pelvic muscles, which will exacerbate the pelvic pain you're having. So with that said, 
Always carry a water bottle around with you. You can add lemon to it, cucumbers, chlorophyll drops, whatever you want. Um, but please, please, please make sure that you are drinking a lot of water throughout the day. And I really feel confident that this will help with any sort of bladder irritation that you are having. Okay. Erica, what's your tip? So my, my tip is, um, always trust your own instinct as a patient and don't always trust your physician. (laughs) So I think that you, that is my favorite tip. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that you need to be your own advocate, right? So if you are getting treated with you know, antibiotics forever. And you're like, you know what? I feel like there's got to be something wrong. Like, why am I, why am I getting all these UTIs? Why is this happening to me? Go, go find another specialist. Mm -hmm. Go do your own research. Say who's the best at UTI management. Ask questions. Bring someone else in the room with you. If Mm -hmm. you feel like you need someone to back you up, like a parent or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever. Yeah. Um, You know, I think it's really important to ask a lot of questions. I think that you should always question the physician. Um, And I know that they always make fun of millennials, but the millennials are the ones that always question Mm -hmm. and they don't accept, they don't accept all advice given, you know, and Dr. Frank Lipman and Aviva Ram talk about this, but they, you know, the millennials are the ones that, you know, are always questioning and, and that's what we should be doing. And you have to be your own advocate and then when you find a pelvic floor pt make sure your pelvic floor pt communicates with your whole team mm-hmm. they need to be talking to your urologist they need to be talking to your physiatrist to your um you know gynecologist and at, when everyone's all working together that's when the patient gets better yeah and not one treatment works you have to try everything yeah you know holistic whether it's all the holistic treatments whether it's one medical and all the holistic treatments whatever works for you you have to try everything because mm-hmm. everyone's different and your gut always tells you like yeah exactly your gut's telling you that something you're not being treated properly like odds are your gut's right yeah and hannah is the perfect example you are an advocate for your own care you researched everything you got yourself your functional medicine doctor you changed your diet you have to do the things you have to do your homework yeah you have to do your homework and you have to follow through with it yeah and when you follow through with all the advice given and you do what you're what you're told by the proper um healthcare providers that's when the patients get better yeah and uh, i could not agree more and like it doesn't even matter how good your doctors are or how good anyone that you're seeing is like i see i see you i see the best physical therapist i have the best gynecologist and the best you know internist and functional medicine doctor i'm fortunate every single day to have all of these amazing doctors and still i'm like doing my own research and i'm always trying to like ask questions learn more why is this still bothering me what can i do for this um like you know you can't just you can't just kind of like check out exactly yeah and you can't just check out and like ride the train no you know you have to do your own research and not meaning like falling through a a google rabbit hole yeah but you know being smart about it and asking the right questions yeah amazing yeah. yeah Thank you. You're welcome. This Erica, great. Oh my, amazing. Where I can people it. get in contact with you or make an appointment with you? Yeah. So I am at Five Point Physical Therapy. We're in Chelsea, uh, Manhattan. And then my email is E-R-I-C-A at the number five, P-O-I-N-T-P-T dot com. So Erica at five point P-T dot com. Um, or you could email me through Gmail. So it's E-R-I-C-A dot A-Z-Z-A-R-E-T-T-O at Gmail. So that's Erica.Azzaretto at Gmail. 
um, yeah, and email me there. Cool. Okay. Thank you for yeah. for being here today. I love it. Um, thank you all for listening. Please share this podcast with your friends, your family, your coworkers. Spread the word about your pelvic floor. Everyone should be more educated on this topic, um, especially anyone you know who has pelvic pain. Please tell them to listen and just really try and spread the word as much as you can. And as always, comment, like, subscribe, and stay tuned for the next episode.